It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. I spoke at the Women's Merch, and someone told me they thought what I said was really controversial. Here's what I said. So we need to seek to understand. There are a lot of people who are hurting, and they voted for Donald Trump because they're hurting, and they didn't think that the traditional Democrats had a plan. Why was that? What specifically is hurting them, and how do we make sure that as we engage with people, we stay tethered to the things that really improve people's lives? This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are thrilled to be with you here today and share our interview with Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. We had a truly delightful conversation with her that I cannot wait for all of you to listen to. Unfortunately, we are going to spend the first half of the show on the very difficult 
heartbreaking, soul-wrenching story coming out of Minneapolis about the death of George Floyd. Before we get to the interview and before we dive into that headline, we did want to share that we're still accepting business stories. So if you run a small business or really any kind of business and you've had struggles, interactions with the federal government over the PPP program or just particular COVID-related challenges as a business owner, we would love to hear from you. If you want to record a short two- to three-minute voice memo and email it to hello at paintsuitpoliticsshow.com, we're going to put those together in an episode along the lines of the kid episode and the personal experience with COVID-19 episode we've done over the last few weeks. Well, as we start to discuss the murder of George Floyd, I think it is important to step back and look at the context for the country, that we are still mourning the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, that we are still pursuing justice in that case, that we are still mourning and pursuing justice in the case of Breonna Taylor, that just this week we have the story of the Central Park incident in which a white woman, Amy Cooper, called the police about a black man who was bird watching in the park and used language suggesting that she, in fact, intended to use his race against him in that altercation. And now we have another traumatic video so similar to what happened to Eric Garner in New York that it is eerie. And another man dead because police approached him about suspicion that he used a counterfeit $20 bill in a store. There are so many layers of this that make it particularly excruciating that we saw this tragedy unfold with Eric Garner using the same exact words that George Floyd uses to plead for his life, which is, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. That it wasn't under any scenario a situation in which the police should have been fearing for their life. It was a minor infraction. He was unarmed. He was handcuffed. I think the fact that you can hear the bystanders around George Floyd, filming the situation, pleading for his life. You hear a first responder, a female who works for the Minneapolis Fire Department, using her expertise and position as best she can to plead for this man's life, to say, check his pulse. He's unconscious. Get off him. I mean, you can, in every way, watch the death of this man on the street unfold in a completely preventable way, right in front of your eyes. It is one of the most heart-wrenching things I have ever seen. I not only pray for his family and his community, I pray for the people surrounding him in that moment who are most surely traumatized witnessing a murder right in front of their eyes and putting it on top of not just the most recent tragedies, but the filming of these tragedies over the last 10 years, I just, I think it is reaching, I pray to God, a critical mass of people where we are recognizing the cancer in our culture 
in our society, in our policies, not in individual hearts and minds. This is everyone's problem. This man's death is on all of us. And I think that is what is so excruciating is because it feels like in 2020, this should not have happened. And yet here we are, not shocked, which makes it even worse. And it's horrific. It's nauseating. And I hear it in a lot of people. I feel like I pray that this is affecting more people and affecting more white people and affecting white people more deeply, uh, more emotionally, so that we can, you know, stop being blind to all of this. And we have to be careful in expressing that, that we don't make it about us as white people. Mm-hmm. Because there is work that is ours to do as white people, to be sure. But a lot of that work is not public work. And I think a lot of white people believe that their work to do on this is public work. Our public work is listening. Our public work is talking with the people in our communities, in our spheres of influence. Um, But our social media kind of outrage and particularly our inclination toward please give me a list of things I need to go do now to make my grief better. And I do not believe that's everyone's intention. And I am not criticizing people who want a list of things to do. But I think it is important to pay attention to how we come across to our loved ones who are black and brown people living with this in a much different way than we have to live with it as white people. You know, the things that make this even more excruciating from my perspective, in addition to what you mentioned, Sarah, is that there were other officers standing there. Mm -hmm. As a bystander, what are you to do other than what those bystanders did? Film it, say something, Mm -hmm. plead, do everything that you can, but recognize that you too are on the other end of a force that is disproportionate here. I mean, you can hear somebody say... What are we supposed to do? Call the police on the police? Right. You hear somebody say that in the video. And those police officers standing there watching this did not have that risk. They had Mm -hmm. the equal force of their colleague who was doing this and chose to do nothing. And I worry that the reporting about how this particular officer has a history of violence, has had fines imposed that we knew that this individual has a deep propensity toward abusing his power will make this an individual issue instead of us realizing that, no, it's a systemic issue, that we still have an officer on active duty like that. Mm -hmm. It's a systemic issue that we always want to litigate the facts of these individual cases. We should not need a video showing us this to believe now that there are officers out there abusing their power against Black men in particular, but against communities in general. There's a document compiled by an organization in Minnesota about the people who have lost their lives to police. The document that we found runs through 2018, 
it is a huge, diverse list of people. It's a huge list of human beings who in senseless encounters with the police ended up dead. And this is not to say that police officers as individuals are bad people. It is to say that we have a problem around how we think about policing in general across this country. It differs community to community. There are communities who are working really hard on this, in part because they themselves have experienced senseless, tragic deaths. But we got to ask ourselves, why are we arming our police officers as though they are going to war every day? Mm-hmm. And why is it more important? I understand that you have to have a society built on the rule of law. I believe in that deeply. Why is it more important in thinking about the rule of law for someone to immediately comply with any request of an officer than for that person to continue to live? I mean, here's the thing. It's just like DNA evidence. Do you think innocent people were only sitting on death row after the use of DNA evidence to free them? Do you think every innocent person sitting on death row has DNA evidence in their case? Of course not. It's only showing a small percentage of the problem. And in the same way, do you think that the execution of innocent people by police officers, by black men, by police officers, only became a problem with the invention of cell phones and cell phone cameras? Do you think a cell phone camera is always used when there is a problematic interaction between the police and black people? Or do you think they are only revealing a small percentage of the problem? And I think to what you said about how we deal with this at white people, listen, I understand that there is a lot of paradox here and it is hard. You hear, listen to Black people, but don't ask them questions. Don't cross-examine them about their experience because that's just another form of oppression. You hear, fight for policies, change the policies, but one policy is not going to fix it, right? It's not. There's not one easy solution to what happened to George Floyd. There's not one police procedure or one law that we can change that will fix this. This problem, this cancer in our country has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it will take longer than every one of us alive today to begin to deal with it. And there's not one easy solution. And the most important part is we're not all starting from the same spot. You know, some people have been working in racial justice for their whole lives. Some people are just waking up to the problem right now. The lessons that have to be learned are going to be different for every individual. And the policies that will have the biggest impact will change um, depending on the community. And then there are also federal problems that can make a huge impact right now. I would start with reparations. But it's hard and it's complicated. And that doesn't mean we can stop. And we're going to feel bad about ourselves and we're going to get it wrong. And we are probably going to see more videos like the death of George Floyd before this gets better. And we have to live with that. And we cannot become discouraged. And we have to realize that this is a massive, massive problem. And I think we're used to easy problems or quick solutions or a consumption model where we buy something and it fixes it. And that's not that's not what this is. That's not what this is. This is a messy, 
complicated power structure that has been ingrained in our country since its beginning. And we all have so much work to do. I was texting with some really dear and thoughtful friends about how we all react to hearing, no, we're all racist and we're all sexist and we're all heteronormative because we all have come up in that context. And how is that? Is that a useful way to talk to people about it? Does that put them too much on the defensive? Does that alleviate responsibility? Does it dilute the impact of saying, no, this was racist? And we were having this discussion. And in my mind, I just keep coming back to a similarity uh, between COVID-19 and racism in that we are struggling with COVID-19 and our individual actions around it because it is a collective problem. And it is a problem that we don't have complete control over. And the control we have feels really uncomfortable to us. And I think that that is a useful piece of how we as white people can think about it when we maintain, deepen, become aware of the idea that we all are racist, that we all have this unconscious bias, that we all do things from a place of being part of this centuries-long history. And so, you know, remembering, I hold this in me without any intention to. And also, it is incredibly powerful. And the thing I must think about constantly is safeguarding other people from it and deepening my awareness of how I can do that. And that's, as you said, Sarah, so well, it's hard. It's confusing. It's complicated. And it's not something to whine about because I am not scared of my children having interactions with the police. So we got to recognize that it's difficult, recognize that it is much less difficult than living in a world created like this if you are black or brown, and just keep moving forward and understanding that there are tons of policies that need to be fixed. I mean, we can take it back to our understanding of crime and punishment in the 1980s and 90s, which is the canvas on which much of what is happening now is written. When we thought mm -hmm. that drugs were the most evil force that could possibly be part of the world, when our Supreme Court endorsed police conduct that is unacceptable and said that the only thing we need to question when we look at the use of force by a police officer is whether it was objectively reasonable from the officer's perspective at the time it was used. Uh, that's not a good standard. We've seen in case yeah. after case after case that that standard does not work and we need a new standard. And if, as you apply that standard to George Floyd, even with it being an unacceptable standard, I think it is clear that this was a murder. It did not unfold quickly. It unfolded painfully slowly, especially for the people who stood there and watched it. The severity of the underlying crime. I mean, I could use a $20 counterfeit bill and not know that I did. Counterfeits are mm -hmm. really good. They're hard to spot. You know, I don't know how I would react to being accused of using a counterfeit bill. And so there is an assumption of not only guilt, but intention built into the way he was approached in the first place. There's so much to think about here. And it is so 
hard and overwhelming when you start to look at our entire approach to crime and punishment and realize how severely misguided, how severely racist, how severely detrimental it is, how dangerous it is for the very people who enforce those laws in addition to the people that they enforce them against. We have a ton of work to do. It doesn't all get done today, but you're right, Sarah, we're going to see more videos like this. It's not going away because it is not about one bad police officer. One of the more encouraging parts of of our current conversation about the death of George Floyd is I'm seeing I'm seeing so many people uh, quote the work of Ibram X. Kendi, which if you've listened to this podcast, you know, I love his work. And I think what's so great, uh, particularly about that conversation about who's racist, are you racist, is his big thing is like, it's fluid. It's like a name tag you take on and off. You can have an interaction in which you reach awareness afterwards that you realize I was being racist. I was making racist assumptions. And it's not a tattoo because then you can say, "Okay, I want to be anti-racist because I think the real breakthrough of his work is saying not racist is not a thing. You're either working actively to dismantle racist power structures, to change racist policies, to raise awareness about racist attitudes and racist stereotypes, or you are allowing them to continue, which is racist. And so I think that the fluidity, I think that he sort of reveals and says, like, let's stop trying to categorize each other and think that's all that matters. That cop is racist. That cop isn't. We're done. No, 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 no. It is much more important to think, okay, but with the structures both cops operate under are what we need to pay attention to. The policies both cops operate under is what's important. The power that is maintained by racist policies, be it in real estate, financing, education, healthcare, criminal justice, that's what matters. And I think, you know, because what's so impossible, and I think I hope everyone can see, is you can't prove whether or not someone is a racist in this 2020 America unless they're a grand wizard in the KKK. That's what we've decided. Like, that's the only objective proof that somebody's racist is if you catch them in the KKK or in a white nationalist rally. Otherwise, if they say, I'm not racist, if you're Donald Trump and you say, I'm not racist, then to a majority of Americans, that's good enough. You can't dive into someone's inner thoughts and say, no, see, what you're really thinking in your head is that you hate black people. And somehow we've made that the level of proof. And so we got to let go of that. Like individual hearts and minds aren't unimportant, but they can shift and change. What's really essential, I think, is using your heart and mind to do the work, to do the anti-racist work of overturning these policies, of changing these power structures, of doing positive things like supporting black businesses, of advocating for change in your own school system. And again, it's not, it's good, powerful work, but it's not going to fix it. And we just have to get really comfortable with the idea that this is a, this is a calling, not like a quick mission we're all going to get on board with and solve tomorrow. Yeah, I think you're right that we have reduced the idea of racism to pure animus instead Mm -hmm. of safeguarding 
structures that feel like passive racism to us as white people are not racist at all because it's so passive. And mm-hmm. and having to do the work of understanding that safeguarding a status quo that actively oppresses other people uh, is is part of racism, too, even if you don't hold that animus. Yep. I don't want to gloss over before we talk with Governor Whitmer the fact that we have passed 100,000 lives lost to COVID-19. And I wanted to share today that uh, my second cousin has been in ICU for a couple of weeks with COVID-19. And it's something that I haven't known how to talk about for a lot of reasons. But I think the biggest thing that I'm realizing is that I haven't wanted to talk about it until he was okay because it felt too scary to talk about in case he wasn't going to be okay. Uh, And he has been released from the hospital today, and we are so relieved and grateful. And I know the people who love him closest and best are incredibly relieved and grateful. I was just thinking about that as I keep seeing the, the really great work that major newspapers have done to put a story to these 100,000 lives that are lost and how intense my own feeling about him battling this has been, even though uh, he's not someone that I see every month by a long shot. He's someone who I love. And knowing that he was there in ICU by himself and waiting uh, every day for the text message that we would receive from his sister, letting us know how he was doing, it's it's been pretty excruciating. And understanding that as a very small thread in this nation's tapestry of anxiety and concern and grief right now uh, has been very eye-opening for me. And so I just want to share that uh, I am certain that we have listeners connected to those 100,000 people intimately and distantly, and we're just holding space around all of the emotions that that creates. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy 
I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now, and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. We are so excited to be joined by Gretchen Whitmer, the 49th governor of Michigan and a longtime member of the Michigan House of Representatives and the Michigan Senate, born and raised in Michigan and the mother of two daughters. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Governor Whitmer. Well, Governor, we're so honored to have you here today. We wanted to start out by just acknowledging that the entire country is in a constant and overwhelming state of grief. We have the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery that we're grieving and processing. We've lost over 100,000 people to COVID-19. People are grieving businesses and lost jobs. From your perspective, we just want to ask, how is Michigan doing? How do you perceive the people handling all of this in the state that you lead? So I would add another stressor that is unique to Michigan is we had a 500-year flood event as well oh where gosh. we had to evacuate 10,000 people. And the next morning, a president took to Twitter threatening to take money away from Michigan because we were mailing absentee ballot applications. And so, you know, you add all of these things in, and it is a time of high anxiety and stress. And yet, every single day, there is a source of inspiration, whether it is uh, an 11-year-old who made me a mask, or it is uh, the people in this community of Midland, Michigan, who suffered this flood, who are reaching out and helping one another, or it's one of the incredible people that has been on the front line of this crisis every single day for the last 12 weeks and who's exhausted but has seen their work um, save lives. And so there's inspiration every day. I feel like Michigan has really, the people of the state, despite some of the protests that we've all seen on television, 
the vast majority of people in this state have taken this seriously, have made the sacrifice that we've asked. And it is, we're seeing that it's paid off and that we've saved lives and we've saved our healthcare systems. And we are now in a place where we can start to re-engage sectors of our economy safely. And so I, I think that there's, that there's hope even in all of this hard stuff that we're confronting. What we always talk about here on the podcast is you never get 100% buy-in. It's not like even during the Revolutionary War, there weren't people that either wanted to stay with Britain or really didn't carry their way. Like, I think we have this theory that every single person has to have complete and total buy-in. But really, you can do so, so much without 100%. It's very true. And I think that's a good reminder for everyone. In this moment, though, this is a public health crisis, and it really shouldn't fall along traditional party lines. And I think that's the part that I find discouraging. I think we'll get through this. I know we'll get through this. And I I think we'll be able to find common ground on some really important, uh, in some very important ways. However, it is distressing that in the midst of a global pandemic, there are political angles that are, I think, creating a lot of the confusion and the anxiety people are feeling. And it would be great if everyone with the platform could focus on the science and the, the public health first and foremost and in all of the decisions that, that we have to make on the, at the state level. Well, I think that's, you know, everyone who works in politics or does policy understands you. it's this really delicate balance between the political capital and the public buy-in. And during a public health crisis, I think what's so brutal for people in leadership like you is that the stakes are higher, the timeline is shorter, And the need for that public buy-in is even more intense. And, you know, you had not been on the job very long. But I wonder, as you look back over these last few months and as the pressure to reopen increases and we look forward to the fall and we all know we're many months away from a vaccine, how are you thinking about that balance? How do we get the public buy-in? How do we strip the partisanship out of this? Do you think so much of it is trickling down from the presidency? I just, as you look back and you, as we move forward into the fall, how are you thinking about that balance? Well, there's no question that the person with the biggest megaphone makes a difference, right? And Mm -hmm. so certainly when the president singled me out for some criticism, it really changed the political dynamic here on the ground. That's such a polite way to put it. I really think that was very grace-filled of you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I've got to stay, keep working with, with all of these people. And so I, I uh-huh. but I, I also think it's important that we're honest about what's happening here. Yep. The political dynamic in Michigan uh, changed very quickly after that happened. The Republican controlled House and Senate went from supporting my executive orders to challenging them to taking me to court. I won in the trial court. I know we're going on appeal, so it's, it's not quite over. But fact of the matter is, Everyone with a platform can make a difference, uh, can alleviate people's fears or can feed into them, can seek to find common ground or can divide us. And so I think that that's why it is so important that we stay tethered to the facts that people like, you know, governors across the country are, are making decisions because there hasn't been a national strategy. And at the end of the day, it's these decisions that are going to, you know, save lives. And so Staying tethered to the science and to the facts, I think, is the most important thing. But communicating with the people who are feeling this anxiety, who are worried about whether or not they're going to be able to, you know, pay their rent or take, you know, put some food on the the table for their family. People who are mourning the loss of a loved one. We've lost 
uh, over 5,200 Michiganders to COVID-19. And we were, the trajectory we were originally on uh, tells us we would have lost thousands more if we hadn't, hadn't done the things that we've, that we've done. And so I do think that communicating regularly with the people of our country um, in a way that is based on science and fact and not seeking to just divide or, or score political points is really crucial to us keeping people focused on continuing to do the right things. I'm worried, of course, as the temperature gets nicer and uh, people get more comfortable that the numbers have gone down, that they, that they let their guard down and make themselves vulnerable to a, you know, a future community spread. COVID-19 is still here. It's going to be here for months to come, if not longer. And we've got to learn to live with it and be smart about protecting ourselves and others. And it can't be about politics. It's got to be about As you think about that public health and navigating the political dynamic, part of my own anxiety comes from the fact that just a few months ago, we were talking about this as novel coronavirus. There's still so much that we don't know. We know a lot more today than we did then, right? But there's still so much we don't know. Some of the guidance has shifted pretty dramatically since the beginning of this crisis. Can you share with us when there are conflicting models or multiple reasonable perspectives on the science? I think the big picture seems almost unanimous on how to handle this. But but where you're making closer calls, what are your guiding lights as you make those those true judgment calls around how to handle this? Well, I think one of the things for which I'm grateful is that I've got some phenomenal, you know, some of the greatest minds in public health here in Michigan. The University of Michigan School of Public Health is uh, one of the groups with whom we regularly confer and is helping us with our modeling. My chief medical executive, Dr. Jenny Caldoun, is incredibly talented We've been able to get on the phone with experts across the country, too, because I think it's important to have that additional perspective. And one of the things I'm most grateful for is I've got a number of fellow governors with whom I have built relationships that we can jump on the phone as well to share our thought process and and what we're seeing and what we're concerned about, how we're navigating a particular issue. And I think that's really important. Information is crucial. And it's important to ask questions of the smartest people you can. And it's also important to talk to colleagues who are confronting a lot of the same stressors that we are. For instance, I know one of you is from Ohio and the other is from Kentucky. Both of your governors are governors with whom I have talked just in terms of to get our arms around the data that they're seeing, the decisions they're making to make sure that we're thinking through. And we're also sharing some of the things that we're seeing here in Michigan. Ohio and Michigan have this football rivalry, but at the end of the day, everyone in each state is better (laughs) off if we're getting the benefit of both the Cleveland Clinic and the University of Michigan as Mm -hmm. we are sharing our information and thought process and data. We don't, it doesn't mean we're all on the same track or the trajectory. It doesn't mean we've all had the same experience or have the same ability to take certain actions, but it does mean we're making better informed decisions. And I think that's really important in the stress of all of this where there is so much new that we don't that we don't know and that we've learned in a short period of time. Well, related to these crises, you ran on infrastructure. I know you've announced a formal investigation into the dam failures that we talked about related to that flooding. Um, you campaigned on fixing the dam roads. 
Um, you campaigned on making sure the water is safe to drink in Flint and throughout the state of Michigan. And all of those issues seem to be of even greater importance, a more accessible and quality healthcare system of greater importance given this crisis, and also really tough to focus on given this crisis. So how are you prioritizing issues as we sit here today? I, I think that's a really important and great question because we know we have to pull all hands on deck to confront the crisis that is playing out globally. And yet we also have to keep doing our other job, which is forging solutions on these fundamentals. One of the things that we saw early on was that there are a lot of people that just didn't have access to water. And we're telling people, wash your hands. Well, you can't wash your hands if you don't have water. And so we took some aggressive actions early on to make sure that we um, reversed water shutoff, that we provided water where their you know, pipes were crushed. Uh, these are, are things that we worked with local communities across the state and different organizations, but it was a problem that needed to be solved fast because of COVID-19. Now, it doesn't mean that the long-term solution has been found. It means that we've, we've come up with a short-term way to meet people's needs in this moment. But it also means, as we're thinking about the next five yards, we also have to be focused on the next 100 yards. And so, one of the things that we are going to be doing in the coming weeks is doing another kind of state of state. One this year was back in January, and so much has changed since then, and then yet so many things have not changed, and that's why we've got to get focused on getting the fundamentals right, and we are going to put um, continued energy into all of those fronts, because it can't just be about this moment. We have to be thinking about our long-term here as well. As you look back on your 14 years in the minority and the Michigan legislator. And as you're here as a Democratic governor with Republican-led state and House and Senate, what are the lessons applicable for everywhere in the country that's facing this hyper-partisanship when you have these 100-year problems that need to get addressed and you have this partisan environment that just soaks into everything? How do we deal with that? We get this question a lot. We get a lot of listeners who are switching parties for the first time, are confronting their family members about partisan politics for the first time. And I think it, it feels like such a Sisyphean task sometimes. And I have to think over your career in public service, you've learned some really important lessons about that. This is not always going to be a useful tool, but I do think <laughs> that understand, seeking to understand one another, right? The, the election of Donald Trump, you know, I went to the Women's March, which was when he was sworn in. And I had already declared my candidacy for governor because I knew Michigan went Republican in that election and that I had my work cut out for me and I needed to get started. And so I filed my paperwork for an election that was two years away on, on January 3rd of that year. I spoke at the Women's March and someone told me they thought what I said was really controversial. Here's what I said. So we need to seek to understand. There are a lot of people who are hurting and they voted for Donald Trump because they're hurting and they didn't think that the traditional Democrats had a plan. Why was that? What specifically is hurting them and how do we make sure that as we engage with people, we stay tethered to the things that really improve people's lives? It's a strategy that works with a certain number of people in our world, frankly. 
And I think it was Bobby Kennedy who said it when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. We must seek to learn. We must seek to understand. And I think that's really important. It's also grounding because Mm -hmm. we know that there is a segment that is never going to be able to engage in a conversation because they're so grounded. And that's true on both sides of the Mm -hmm. the aisle. But I think for the vast majority of people who are just working hard, they're good people. They want and expect their government to work hard and to be as good as they are. And they deserve that. And, And seeking to understand is an important part of it. Now, I always, you know, even tell my kids, there are some people you're never going to convince and it's, it's, you need to cut your losses at a certain point in time, but the vast majority of people are open-minded. They're they're good people. And if you start from that place, you can really Mm -hmm. um, make some, have some meaningful conversations that might nerd both of your benefits. It seems obvious as we are dealing with the question of reopening, that a key to really getting the economy thriving again is is childcare, safe childcare that's available to everyone. Is there an opportunity because of this crisis to work with your Republican representatives in a way that might not have existed before on universal pre-K or other priorities around childcare? I hope so. I, I look at every challenge like this as an opportunity. We know that a lot of people are trying to figure out how to get back to work and schools are closed and their childcare facilities haven't reopened. That's why we've tried to have a cadence where we could re-engage certain sectors at a time where we're re-engaging the childcare, commensurate with it. But at the end of the day, we know that we have to make it an investment in childcare in this country. Most childcare centers aren't going to be able to make it financially if we, you know, lower the number of kids that they can have at a certain time. And we know that that's probably what we're going to need to do to keep from having too many kids congregate and go in and out of homes. I did, I've been chatting with some of my colleagues and Governors Bashir and DeWine are part of the conversation. And we're all kind of confronting the same issue. And so it is not should not be a a partisan issue. I'm hopeful that we can find some common ground here because we've got to support these child caregivers so that as people re-engage, that they've got a a safe, good place for their children. And so I'm hopeful that this is a place where we can find some common ground. The CARES Act dollars give us some ability to do some of these things. And um, if we can find leaders on both sides of the aisle that embrace this, I think it's going to be really important for us as a country to do right by the children because we know there's real learning loss between the end of a traditional school year and the beginning of the next. What we're going to be confronting in in this scenario is could be so much bigger, and that's why it's going to be so much more important that we have these additional supports for our kids and our working families. So another big part of government infrastructure that is going to increase in importance in the fall is obviously voting in the general election, getting government offices opened up, issuing um, IDs, of course, the seemingly non-controversial, but in 2020 controversial idea of absentee ballots. What do you think is essential as we move forward as far as just election security. And then I really want to hear your perspective as, you know, a lifelong Michigander, as what got missed in Michigan 
in 2016 as far as Democratic politics and what you think is essential that needs to be watched out for in 2020? Well, I'll start with this. This is some really good news. In 2018, the people of Michigan amended our Constitution to give the ability for people to vote at home without an excuse. Prior to then, you had to go in and sign an affidavit that you weren't going to be in town or there was some reason you couldn't vote. So it was not no excuse absentee voting. And so absentee voting was not really uh, utilized very well here in Michigan. And you had to do it for each election. And so we hadn't built up kind of the muscle uh, memory that other states have in terms of their vote at home programs. Fortunately, in 2018, we amended our constitution to give everyone the right to vote from home. We are uh, had our first experiment with it in May. We had a number of school bond issues on the ballot. And our experience was that, you know, people understand it was safer to vote at home because of COVID-19. So they availed themselves of it. And we had twice the turnout you normally would expect uh, for the May election. And the vast majority of school bonds passed. So even in the midst of a, you know, global pandemic, people decided to raise their own taxes to support schools. And I think that those takeaways are, are really give me great hope about the ability of us to increase voter participation and to really change the, the outcome of, of where we are as a country and where we're headed. And I think that that's, that's inspirational. Now, of course, we've got more work to do in terms of getting people to apply for the absentee ballot. The Secretary of State is taking that on, and that's what inspired the, the tweet from the White House the other day. But this is something that we know can be successful and can dramatically improve turnout, and that's something that's really important. With regard to the security, I do know that we are going into this election have, you know, concerns with regard to foreign interference in our elections. And Michigan's a really decentralized place uh, for, you know, compared to other states. We've got hundreds of clerks that are doing the frontline work. It is organized by the Secretary of State, but it's, it's a challenge. And we are very concerned about security and we're taking certain measures to, to protect the integrity of, of the vote. With regard to 2016, the turnout in Michigan that year was abysmal. I mean, mm. it had dropped dramatically. And I think that's part of what we're seeing in our politics. So when people seek to depress turnout, um, you get results like, like what happened in 2016. For the first time in many presidential cycles, Michigan went red. In 2018, we had a historic turnout, and I won my race by almost 10 points. And it was, you know, this, this incredible turnout. People are motivated to vote. And so long as we can give them the ability to do so safely at home, which we now have that chance to do, I think that we're going to see uh, an incredible turnout. And I, I believe it's going to be very different than what we saw in 16. They're motivated. I think 16 part of it was Michigan was taken for granted. I think that there were a lot of different pieces that went into that. And of course, we know that all of the horrible things that happened to Hillary Clinton at the end of the campaign, whether it was Comey or it was Russian interference, all of those played a role. But our margin was so thin here in Michigan that I've really taken from that and used in my campaign 
that we need to show up. And I went to all 83 counties in Michigan. It's, I'm not saying that our presidential nominee should do that. that you don't have the time. But I do think showing up is really important mm-hmm. and showing up for the American people by staying focused on the things they care about, like fixing the damn roads. Governor, I've been thinking about the coverage of you and sort of the fascination with you on the national stage as I compare it to the way that Governor Bashir, for example, is covered. And I am certain that there is a gendered aspect to that. I would love to know how you think about where being a woman governor benefits you and where it burdens you. I'm thinking especially of the really moving floor speech you gave as a legislator about the importance of having people who know what they're talking about writing laws. And I wonder where you see that really being an asset and where I would imagine it just drives you crazy, some of the the things that are seized on to be written about endlessly. It is. You know, I've been watching the um, Hillary Clinton document. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) It's inspiring and it's depressing. (laughs) and It's the ups and the downs, right? And I think that every woman in the workplace has, has felt a lot of that, especially those of us who've put our, you know, name on a ballot. And I know, too, that we have a voice that is incredibly important. And my daughters, who are 16 and 18, I gave birth to one my first term in the house and the other my second term in the house. And they've seen this, and I know that it's made them stronger. It's also been stressful for them. But I think it's important for them and other women, uh, older and younger, to see us fighting for the things we believe in and speaking our truth to power. The reaction uh, in this COVID-19 environment has been very different in that I haven't said things that other governors haven't said. What I have said has been consistent with what you hear from governors all across the country, but I've been singled out and treated differently, treated differently in a negative way from the White House, treated differently, maybe in a positive way from speculation around, you know, uh, Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is I'm just doing my job and I'm never, ever going to apologize for doing my job. When all of this started, when New York and New Jersey and Michigan and uh, Louisiana were all on this exponential growth trajectory, you saw all four of us governors all the time on the news. We said a lot of the similar things. I was treated differently. And and maybe it's because Michigan's a swing state. Maybe it's because of my gender. I'm not going to speculate about the motivations of the critics. I will just say that it was I, it was very different for me. And you know what? It's fine because if you get into elective office, you can't uh, crumble at political critique. You just can't. You can't crumble when the protesters show up. We have to make decisions based on doing the right thing and what the science is. And and so long as we stay tethered to that, we're going to be okay. And it is a unique additional stressor on top of all of the other things that we're confronting as a nation. But I think, too, it gives us an opportunity to cut through some of the noise and to make sure that our voices are heard. I worked for Hillary Clinton in 2007. I think her best piece of advice is you take criticism seriously, but not personally. And that is some intense wisdom that you see through that documentary that she has just soaked into her every cell. And it is very impressive. 
I hope while you're on Hulu, you're also watching Mrs. America. It is it's so good. I've seen the first three episodes and I love Kate Blanchett and it's hard for me to watch something where I'm not crazy about her. <laughs> I know, right? She's so amazing. Well, and speaking of governor leadership, you know, female governor leadership in particular, our listeners, they need to know, Governor, is there a female governor group text? And will you share some screenshots with us? <laughs> I will tell you this, that I've had some hilarious exchanges with some of my female governors. Uh, Janet Mills from Maine is just one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> Laura Kelly from Kansas is so, you wouldn't know it just by seeing her public presentation, but she is so funny. So yes, we do have some text messages that go back and forth and and they're a riot. Michelle Lujan Grisham, Gina Raimondo, and Kate Brown. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing group that, that I'm a part of and, and I'm awfully grateful. That's awesome. Well, we began by asking you how Michigan is doing. We wanted to end by just saying, how is Gretchen Whitmer, the human being, doing? Thank you for asking. Um, I, you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay. It's My mom would always say, if someone said, how are you doing? She'd always say, I'm super deluxe. And it always got a <laughs> laugh. and always made it light. People thought it was funny and a little weird, but positive, you know, and and I get that from her. I am an optimistic person, and I like to make people laugh and, and brighten their day. And in this moment, I've, I've come to kind of embrace the phrase, I'm hanging in there, because yeah. it's been challenging. And I think the personal attacks and the um, threats of violence have, are certainly concerning. I don't spend too much energy on them. I've got the state police that has my back and the vast majority of people are are really appreciative and agree with the actions that we've had to take but it it some of the days can be hard i'm not going to i'm not going to lie to you but you know what every single day without exception there's a source of inspiration and that keeps me going well i think you're probably using some of the techniques that all of us moms use which is Time goes so fast. It doesn't like I, that's what I keep telling myself on the most stressful days of this. I'm like, well, my ten year old was born approximately eight minutes ago, so in a blink of an eye, he'll be gradu- he'll be eighteen like yours, and this will all be over. That's what I just have to keep telling myself. That's right. That's right. Well, Governor, thank you so much for spending time with us and for your leadership through this crisis. We uh, would love to talk with you again anytime. Thank you both. Take care. You too. Thank you. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh. God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit.
We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick and ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you so much to Governor Whitmer, to her team, to the Democratic Women Governors Association for making this conversation happen today. We are really grateful. I learned a lot in that conversation, uh, particularly about Michigan, and I hope it was beneficial to all of you. One quick note, Governor Whitmer mentioned that one of us is from Kentucky and one from Ohio. That is both accurate and incomplete. We both live in Kentucky. But if you Google me, everything that you're going to find about my life has occurred in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, And so (laughs) if that was confusing, that's why. Uh, But it showed, I thought, so much care of her team to have, have done that level of diligence on us. So thank you again. We will be back with you on Tuesday. And we know we've had a lot of guests lately, but that's because we're living in a time that requires a lot of expertise. And so we're bringing back our resident coronavirus expert, Michelle Becker, to answer more of your questions specifically about how do we think about getting out and about in the world again on Tuesday. Very excited to share that with you. And so we hope you join us then. In the meantime, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Production. Elise Knapp is our managing editor. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. 
Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Martha Branitsky, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Jared Minson, Allison Luzader, Janice Elliott, Barry Kaufman, and Sarah Ralph. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.